Politics of Sound with Ian Carnegie. My guest for this month caught the political bug early. At the age of 11, while his peers obsessed over heroes from the worlds of sport and media, he could be found standing outside Parliament in the hope of catching a glimpse of the comings and goings of MPs and maybe even collecting an autograph or two. He joined the BBC as a political analyst direct from university before becoming a political columnist for the Daily Telegraph. In 2008, he became co-editor of Conservative Home, making him the first journalist from a British national newspaper to leave the mainstream media to become a full-time professional blogger. After a stint as political editor of the Taxpayers' Alliance, latterly rising to chief executive, he moved to join the newly founded Brexit Central as its editor. He is Jonathan Isaby, and we're about to hear what inspires him, both politically and musically, on this, The Politics of Sound. Jonathan Isby, welcome to The Politics of Sound podcast. Thank you very much. Before we go any further, there you are, standing outside Parliament as a boy, hoping to catch a glimpse of some of your political heroes. How successful were you? Oh, well, I mean, relatively successful. And if you go through my autograph collection... Uh, at home, there are probably hundreds of autographs of political figures from around that time of the, the 1990s. Uh, I basically got the political bug when they started televising the House of Commons in 1989. And, you know, as you say, you know, it, it was a pretty precocious interest to have. And uh, not many of my direct contemporaries shared this particular interest. <laughs> But no, I mean, the televising of Parliament was absolutely opened up that world to me and I got absolutely hooked on it and uh, have been ever since. What is it that fascinated you particularly about these characters? I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I suppose the, the, uh, even at that stage, I'd always like watched the news and, and taken interest in current affairs and at the end of the day, these were the people who were making the decisions about how the country is run, uh, which is a pretty important job. Uh, although, as we've seen over the last 25 years, uh, they actually ceded quite a lot of that power to a higher body in Brussels over that time, which was rather disappointing. Um, and obviously, you know, in, in the early 90s, the, the, that was when the, the big debates about Britain's place in Europe really began to take off when the Maastricht Treaty was signed and all the discussion that emanated from that. Were there any particular individuals that you remember meeting outside Parliament? I remember one occasion meeting Dennis Skinner, who you won't be entirely surprised to know is not exactly on the same page as me politically. Although, to be fair, he is a, he is a Brexiteer. He, Dennis Skinner voted to leave the European Union and has voted quite regularly along those lines recently. But, you know, there, yeah, so there was me, this um, schoolboy, uh, you know, who noticed Dennis Skinner about to go into Parliament and asked him, I, I went up to him and said, Mr Skinner, you know, would you mind signing this for me with my kind of um, guide to the House of Commons galleries, which I was getting signed by anyone I, I noticed. 
And to be fair, to be fair, he 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 signed it. And I I got his autograph, and he obviously heard my you know, middle class South of England vowels and thought, I wonder where he's from. And he said, you know, where do you come from then? And I said, oh, I come from Surrey. And he, he was highly impressed. He, he <laughs> I think he realised that he and I were not on the same page, and uh, he went on his way. But uh, yeah, he of course is now the oldest member of Parliament. Before we go any further, I. I imagine there'll be a number of listeners to this podcast asking themselves, what is Brexit Central and what does it do? Well, Brexit Central was founded after the referendum in 2016 by Matthew Elliott, who was the man who'd been chief executive of the Vote Leave campaign, a very old friend of mine. And he wanted there to be a portal through which to chronicle the process of leaving the European Union, to keep the public, in particular the Leave voting public, but everybody and indeed observers uh, from overseas as well. We've got a, a lot of interest in what we do from, from people overseas. And to, to basically provide that running commentary on the process and to a degree to hold the government to delivering on the result of the referendum. And so we set it up in September 2016. Uh, and the the basics of what we do is a morning email that goes out about 8.30 every morning from me or one of my deputy editors, which basically summarises what has happened over the previous 24 hours. We, we, you know, we will kind of take bits from different newspapers, from different websites, from different broadcasters and pull it all together in one place as a kind of one-stop shop for everything you need to know about Brexit on any given morning, as well as hosting opinion pieces or analysis pieces by ourselves or by politicians or academics or business people or campaigners or, you know, all, I mean, you know, over the last two and a half years, we've published pieces by, I think, about 450 different people. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a resource that uh, has, has people have found ever more useful as the process of Brexit has continued. What would be a typical day... For Jonathan Isabey, or is there no such thing? When we were setting up your appearance on Politics of Sound, we spoke on the phone, you were in Central Lobby. How does a day for Jonathan Isabey normally pan out? I mean, the, the one bit that is constant is is the morning routine. So the email we want to get out by 8.30 in the morning, which means I'm usually up by about quarter to six in the morning preparing the email, because the email has a kind of letter from me at the top of it, you know, then it goes on to pulling the, the links together and so on in one place. And, you know, I'll be listening to the Today programme on Radio 4 during that time, preparing it all, uh, p- putting it all together, you know, usually with the with the help of one of my colleagues, where are they in their respective homes. You know, I'm not in the office uh, at that time of the morning, but I'm working from home, putting that together, you know, by just after eight o'clock, there's a kind of everything's pulled together and we need to do a kind of final read through of it you know check for spelling errors and formatting errors and things and then push the button the email goes out to our tens of thousands of readers uh we post the content onto the website and at that point i will then head into london head into the office uh, we have a little office in in central london in westminster um but also as as you say i spend quite a lot of time around parliament and at, at that point there isn't really a typical day sometimes i'll be in the office editing pieces that people have submitted or that i've commissioned uh, or i will be doing the commissioning of other pieces or if there's a particular session in in parliament discussing brexit issues i'll go and sit up in the press gallery and watch it and tweet about it while it's going on or just spend time around parliament 
you know meeting with people talking to people soaking up the atmosphere just seeing you know what what information you can garner just by being around there and that's that's um that's a very old style way of doing journalism really this is something which i think a lot of people would be fascinated by where do you get your stories not naming names but how sure can you be that what you are putting on your website is probably Mm -hmm. correct and have you gone to press if that's the right term and then it was wrong all journalism is based on what your sources tell you and some of those sources you know occasionally will have had a bum steer themselves or be perhaps pushing a particular line of something that they want to happen that perhaps hasn't happened but you know in the main you, you can tell from what i write each morning i am sometimes sharing stories that i've heard speculating about what may or may not happen uh, and frankly the the situation we're in at the moment in terms of brexit which is a very fast moving situation and you know, by the time this goes out who, who knows where we'll be you will share nuggets of gossip but you know what what may be happening and what may be planned uh one moment may may change a few hours later you speak about a fast moving situation can you remember a time such as this indeed within your lifetime can you recall a period of greater political upheaval I mean, I don't think I can, and certainly from all the people I talk to around Westminster every day, a lot of whom have been there quite a long time, they can't think of it either. It is an extraordinary situation, and those of us who wanted to leave the European Union feel somewhat vindicated because a lot of us said over many years that you know, the European Union has taken power from Westminster in all kinds of areas uh, of policy uh, and yet you know throughout the the last couple of decades the those in favor of the European Union and UK membership of the European Union have have said that it was nonsense for people like me to suggest that the EU uh, influenced all these different laws and created x percentage of legislation and all and so on and yet what the continuity remainers are saying now is well this is frightfully difficult because it affects every single area of policy and every area of national life this is very complicated you know, to which a lot of us are saying yes that's why we wanted to get out of it in the first place but yeah it is an extraordinary situation and certainly in terms of kind of political paralysis inside parliament and inside government that in terms of actually getting on with quote normal politics and normal decision making there's not a lot of that seeming to be going on and i think the british public are getting increasingly frustrated by that because clearly there are a whole load of very important domestic policy issues that need to be addressed and yet brexit has taken so much bandwidth that there's not a lot of that going on which is another reason why in my view the government and parliament need to jolly well get on with delivering brexit so that parliament and our elected politicians can get on with obviously yes using the additional powers they've now reclaimed from brussels but getting on with the the normal business of government you are a confirmed eurosceptic 
you must have woken up on the morning after the referendum, if you went to bed at all, which I doubt, and felt that the country maybe was about to emerge blinking into a new, brighter future. And yet here we are almost three years after that moment, and everything seems to be something of a mess. Where do you think it's all gone wrong? And what were the pivotal moments of mistake in your view? I mean, I certainly remember that morning very well. And you're right, I certainly didn't go to bed. It was an incredibly exciting moment. And, you know, let us not forget, more people in our country voted to leave the European Union than have ever voted for anyone or anything in British electoral and political history. This but equally, was, nearly as many voted to remain. Not, not as many, though. And, you know, it was a clear majority of more than a million votes. But putting this more in a nutshell, what pivotal moments do you think that there were or have been that has left us where we are now in this hiatus the 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 pivotal moment was when Theresa May signed up to the Irish backstop and David Davis the then Secretary of State for Brexit advised her not to do it and said this this could well be a trap Uh, she ignored her Secretary of State she took the advice of the civil servants instead and you know, this is the, the Irish backstop is probably arguably the, the crux of why we're in this impasse at the moment because that's the key reason why uh, a, a smallish but significant group of Conservative Brexiteer MPs will not back the deal that she did with the European Union. Is Mrs May the problem? I think... It is increasingly viewed that around Westminster that Theresa May doesn't have the confidence of her members of parliament. She certainly doesn't have the confidence of her party in the country. I used to edit the Conservative Home website. The Conservative Home surveys of party members have seen 82% in the most recent survey that came out saying that she should go now. Who do they want? Well, that's a question. They they want, I think, the Tory party members in the country want a conviction Brexiteer so in the hot seat. Dominic Raab, we're talking Boris Johnson. Th- those would be the two obvious names, although, you know, other Brexiteers are touting themselves. Esther McVeigh has obviously said that she would like to be a contender who's another former cabinet minister who voted for Brexit, who resigned from the cabinet over Brexit. Um... And I think you know, when when the Tory leadership contest happens, and as I say, by the time this podcast goes out, who knows what might have happened? It, the, the starting gun might even be about to be fired. Who knows? But when it does happen, there will be a contest involving a hell of a lot of people who fancy that job. Uh, but the Tory grassroots will get to decide between the top two candidates from the the MPs ballot and. By all, by all accounts, I would be surprised if the more Eurosceptic of those two candidates didn't win that ballot. Very quick answer. If we were to have a general election, and there has been talk about a general election, the Labour Party want one. Whether they will get one will be another matter. What do you see as the outcome of that? It's impossible to say right now because... There are so many unknowns. Um, I, I mean, my, I've had a sense for several months that 
a general election is likely sooner rather than later, merely because of the arithmetic in Parliament creating this deadlock, uh, which will make it very difficult to pass pretty much any legislation. We're going to get onto the music in a minute, but how do you think history will regard this period ultimately? I think it will probably depend how the period concludes. Um, and we don't know how it will conclude at this moment. Well, we shall see. Now, all this is very important, of course, but equally important is your impending visit to the politics of sound virtual record shop mm -hmm. from which you will hopefully emerge brandishing some of your favourite albums. Before we let you into the shop, you're a busy man. What sort of a role, if any, does music play within your day-to-day -day life? I'm not a huge role within my day-to-day -day life, although I do, I do sometimes listen to my iPod when I'm commuting in, although I do often find myself listening to podcasts and political podcasts at that. Has that I'm been commuting. quite a new thing? Um, yeah, I was quite late to get into the podcasts, actually, but there are... There are some very good political podcasts, of which this is clearly going to become one. Of course. Um, is a visit to a record shop something, and there are not many around now, but is a visit to a record shop something that will represent a pleasure for you? Or would you normally obtain your music online? The thing is, I still basically do buy CDs rather than download I stuff. You could still get, I suppose Amazon still has them. Yeah, well, I mean, you, I, you can still go into shops and buy physical CDs. and, and a, a, I, a more rare occurrence, I would have thought now. Yeah, I dare say. But I, I do, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, I very rarely get the chance to go to a shop to, to look at CDs like that. Uh, because if I'm out shopping, I often will have my six-year-old son in tow, who is not so, uh, not so keen for, to allow me to spend hours browsing. In recent years, there's been a, an obvious revival in the vinyl album, which I think was a surprise to a lot of people. Does this interest or excite you? See, I've, I'm a heretic. I've, I've never owned a, a physical record player. You know, even growing up, we basically only had tape players. So as a kid, I would, I would buy music on tape. And then for my 18th birthday, I got a hi-fi with a CD on it and started buying CDs. Was that a big moment? Yeah, it was an important moment, yes. So, yeah, tapes, then CDs. I've never actually owned vinyl. So when you come out of our record shop, you're going to be holding CDs in your hand? I am, yes. The moment has arrived. It's time for you to visit the Politics of Sound record shop. <laughs> So, did you enjoy yourself in the shop? Of course. Did you find it a, a nice atmosphere for browsing? It was delightful. So there was a bit of browsing going on? There was. So, what have you bought? What is the first album choice of Jonathan Isabey? My first album choice is an album called Now That's What I Call Now. A recent release. Which came out very recently. And it's, I suppose, this is a kind of... The fact is, you only allowed me three choices. You didn't allow me 103 choices. Sadly not. So, what... Any, well, it's, it's on my Twitter 
bio and I have appeared in national newspapers talking about it so people know about this. I I own every single Now That's What I Call Music album. There will be those who don't know what Now That's What I Call Music is. I can't is. believe that. I don't believe they're, that. They are bound to exist. What, what is it? As you well know, the Now That's What I Call Music brand was created at the back end of 1983 and the very first album, it was effectively a kind of greatest hits of 1983. Classic compilation album. And then they released another one about six months later. Now that's what I call Music 2. And then another one six months after that at Christmas 1984. And then it, it, the first few were every six months. And then they relatively soon got into a pattern of three a year. One at Easter, one in the summer, one at Christmas basically just pulling together some of the best tunes from the previous few months in one place and recently we got up to now 102 and i own every single one of them and what now that's what i call now is it came out a few months ago it's basically one song from each of the first 100 albums you've described this series as the soundtrack to your life. I have. What is it about it that appeals to you so much? Well, as, as you say, the I, I've always enjoyed listening to music. And the, the brilliant thing about having this full collection of Now albums is that you can take any one, push it on, and it will transport you back to a particular moment in your life. Music is clearly very evocative of feelings and memories and so certain tracks will just take you back to a particular time in your life and given that I was born in December 1977 and the first one came out in 1983 you know it it basically is my entire conscious life. This collection how have you managed to accumulate such a thing? Well I mean I each time a new one comes out, I buy it. But <laughs> there must have been simple. many that you didn't, you well, didn't buy at the time. It start, well, no, it, it started at now... The first one I bought brand new was now 10, back in 1987. And that was the point at which I, I started buying them as they came out. And then it was quite a few years later that I thought it was a bit daft that I didn't have one to nine now I think by that stage I think eight and nine I'd picked up somewhere but I, I basically went onto eBay and just kind of completed the set in CD form or is no, it no no the, fir- the first the first the first 31 I had on tape and then I say when I turned 18 and I got the CD player I started getting them on CD so, so you th- have a cassette 32, player I do so 32 was the first one that I got on CD um, although they did re-release Now One in CD format recently, which I now own. Um, and I think is it they, a classic? Of course it is. I say it's effectively the, the greatest hits of 1983, and it starts off with um, Phil Collins' Easy Lover, if I recall correctly, and Karma Comedians on it. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's classic stuff. Now provides not only a a, a potted history of pop music from the 1980s to the present, but also gives us a fascinating insight, I suppose, into the changes in listening formats during that time. It's been released on vinyl, cassette, compact disc, download, and even periodically on mini disc, VHS, Betamax, and Laserdisc. 
Is any of your collection on uh, one of those more defunct formats? Um, I mean, I, no, certainly not now. I think I them. You haven't got a laser disc. No, I haven't. Now. Funny enough, I think at I don't one think, point, I don't think anybody at has, one point, I may have had a VHS of of one or two of them, but um, that has long since been consigned to the history books. But I, I do have the complete set on cassette then cd now you may be aware of this but uh, the name of the series was actually coined from a 1920s poster indeed do you want to tell us about that well it, it was a poster in richard branson's office if i recall correctly i think he gave it to his cousin or brother it was it was in one of their offices anyway simon draper i think who was his who was a big wig in virgin maybe he still is and i think and it which said now that's what i call music and what did it have on it and there was a pig on it Yes. Which became the iconic uh, part of the logo in the very early editions of the compilation, but it kind of took a back seat after a few years. A difficult question, possibly, but do you have a favourite now compilation? I'm, I'm still very fond of Now 10 because it was the very first one that I bought. Um, I, I'm, the, the ones from the the mid 30s and late 30s kind of transport me back to when I was at sixth form and then at university and so that's a very kind of the soundtrack evocative period in my life you're clearly not alone in your love of the series you obviously have now 44 I don't know if that's a particular favorite but is that the best-selling one that was released in 1999 it shifted no less than 2.3 million copies and the series has combined UK sales figures in excess of a staggering 85 million. But you are a super fan. Oh, I, yeah, I think so. And I have, as I have been featured in several newspaper articles. There was, there was, it was when, um, now which year? It was around the time, it wasn't for one of the anniversaries. It was, I think it was a slow news day, one August, a few years ago now, when the sun basically ran a story on here's this guy who owns all these how did they know about you um do you know i can't i think uh, i'm trying to remember because because i work in the media it's just a thing that gets known and i'd i'd done i'd certainly appeared on radio five live for one of the anniversaries when one one of was it the 20th or 25th anniversary or something you know people got to know about it um so, but there was the Sun ran this story on a slow day, new day, news day, one August, about this guy who owns all the now albums, which they they headlined. I think very unfairly. Now that's what I call tragic. <laughs> that wasn't and, very pleasant. And the and the and the joke was this was on page three of the Sun in the time when they still have page three girls as well. So it was it was. A collector's edition of the sun that one <laughs> do you uh, still have it i have it somewhere yes and they even they e but the but they even did a sun says about me there, there was an editorial uh about me the editorial was, actually <laughs> featured you and your name it, it was it was it was making comment about uh <laughs> my collection yeah now i think it's time to put you to the test because it's now time for a quick round of now or no you're going to hear a series of statements about the Now series, and all you have to do is tell us if it's true now or false. No. Here they are. 
Richard Branson went on to marry the owner of the shop where he bought the celebrated poster featuring the chicken and the pig. Now? That is true. That is true. Here's number two. There is no version of Now in America. No. Yes, fairly unsurprisingly, there is a Now in America. Madonna is one of the highest featured artists on the series. No, she's never been on one. But she's she's never been, if you count the Chronicle series from 1 to 102. She refused to be on it. Here's the next one. The first song to appear on any Now album was by Phil Collins. Now. Is correct. It would take over 250 hours to listen to every Now album back to back. I'm sure it would. Is correct. But the question is, can you complete the set and get the full house? Here's the last one. Every volume of Now has made it to number one spot. Um, I'm not sure on that, actually. I... If you don't know, no one will know. I mean, it must now, it must have done. It's no, I'm afraid. It's at number four, only made it to number two for two weeks. Really? What kept it off the top slot? Make it big by Wham. That's for one of the weeks. And then for the second week, it was the great rival of the Now compilations at that time, which was a release called The Hits Album, which I think now is defunct. I think all of us listening will feel that you are a proper now connoisseur. You would like to be one. Very much so, yes. I think it's time to reveal your second album. Which album are we looking at now? It's called Pop Art by the Pet Shop Boys, which is effectively a kind of greatest hits of the Pet Shop Boys. Another they've, compilation album. Another compilation album. I mean, they've, they've produced several greatest hits album effectively Pet Shop Boys one of them an early one was called Discography but Pop Art is the one that basically has all of their very popular material on although to, I mean to be fair they, they haven't really been in the top 10 for at least a decade it is a compilation album and you're quite right there's been more than one compilation album by the Pet Shop Boys they've been slightly playful with the format I think you're right the first one was uh, Discography in 1991. And then they released Alternative, which was in 1995, and that's a collection of their B-sides. Pop Art is... I think it was a double CD when it was released. It would have been. Yes. With the first CD, CD1, being the pop section, which was just pure pop classic singles. And the Art CD hopefully being a little bit more arty and experimental, if you like. Mm. How successful do you think it is in actually achieving that? I think it's a great listen. And I, I, but are I, they genuinely experimental, do you think? Um, I mean, I, I love listening to music. I don't think about it particularly technically, um, except to say I, I enjoy listening to what I enjoy listening to. And you know, pop art the, the, is a is a fantastic CD to put on in the car while you're driving, 
and there's a lot of really good feel-good tracks in there. I, I have to admit, although I obviously know the music of the Pet Shop Boys, I was fairly unaware of this album until very recently. It's a fairly heady brew. Is it that positivity within the music that makes it such a favourite for you? Yeah, and I do. I like um, I like my pop music on the cheesier end of the scale and the, the kind of... <laughs> uh, the, the kind of... The, the synth pop sound is, is great. And I, I, I simply enjoy listening to it. Do you have any particular tracks that you love on this album i mean i like a lot of, a lot of them there's one track in particular which is not very well known i think it's a shame because i think it's a really good song it's called i get along and it was actually it was released as a single in 2002 i think and it only got to number 18 in the uk chart which is a great shame because it is a really good piece of music i get along is is particularly interesting when i was listening to it it did catch my attention because it doesn't really sound like the Pet Shop Boys. That's true. It's not as synthy pop as most Pet Shop well, Boys got, songs. It's got a guitar on it for a start. Yeah. And the instrumentation, the harmonies are a real departure. I thought it was more reminiscent of Oasis. There, I, see, I know exactly what you mean. There's several interesting things about that song. Um, musically, the, the chord sequencing, I think, is very Baroque, actually. If you, if you take the chord sequences of the chorus and break them up i think it's a very similar chord sequence to the handle arrival of the queen of sheba which is a kind of classic sequence of of and i i'm sure that chord sequence must have been used in all number of pieces of music over the centuries well they've been no strangers to using harmonic progressions from classical pieces pachelbel's canon was used in Go West. There's another very interesting connection, and particularly with this podcast, which is that there is a direct political association. Yes, it with is. This song. It is said that Neil Tennant wrote this song about Tony Blair having to deal without this is Peter so, Mandelson. This is so so it, Peter Mandelson, when he resigned from the Labour government. Um, you know, was obviously Tony Blair's closest one, and before he, that, in nineteen exactly, he was he was one of Tony Blair's closest political allies, and Blair was having to deal without him. And uh, the, I mean, the lyric of the song is "I get along without you very well," and then there's references to, um, I think it's the second verse opens something like, uh, "Now I find that you'd rather be with rock royalty instead of people like me." Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a, that is yes a, a, a bizarre political illusion, but it's it's a I think it's a great piece of music. Alas, I've never seen them play that live. I I've only seen Pet Shop Boys live once, and that was supporting Take That at Wembley about eight years ago. Did they have their whole show? Because the lights and the staging is a very important part of a Pet Shop Boys show. Mm, I mean, no, it, it, say they were supporting Take That. So they they weren't the main event, so it wasn't quite as as uh, glitzy as I imagine it would be if they were. Lyrics, like you have already mentioned, uh, have been something which have gone throughout their career. Indeed, they recently released an EP, I think it was in November last year, Give Stupidity a Chance. Were you aware of this? 
I, I don't own that. One particular song, what are we going to do about the rich? They're avoiding paying taxes while the welfare state collapses. Their extravagance and arrogance, their lack of tax to balance this, their lawyers and their attitude, the scale of their ingratitude. They only want to give to charity for maximum publicity. What are we going to do about the rich? That, I mean, that's clearly a very political song, and I, I dare say this is a, a salutary reminder that there are more left-wing musicians than there are right-wing musicians. Do you think it's fair to say that the politics of the right have always come in for a bit of a kicking from pop musicians and probably artists in general? I mean, I think, yeah, you, you only need to look at how how few people from the world of pop music I can think of who have come out in support of centre-right candidates uh, in elections to and and to look at the you know the number of musicians who do involve themselves in very political causes which tend to be you know of a more left-wing nature to, to conclude that although to be i think about that said gary barlow actually famously came out for the tories in 2010 is the list any more extensive than it's, that? it's it's not a very long list uh from thinking oh tony hadley of course he tony hadley was a big supporter of the tory party i think um, that david van day of no he's Dollar, yes he's now a tory councillor somewhere he is and i can't remember where <laughs> You are also, obviously, a great connoisseur about the Pet Shop Boys. Do you have all of their albums? No, I don't. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not a super fan of the Pet Shop Boys, but I, they're one of those groups who, I think, over the years, consistently produced a lot of really good music and had some very big hits. I mean, their cover of Elvis is Always On My Mind was the Christmas number one in 1987. And 1987, it's a, it's a super, super year rounded off with a brilliant Christmas number one and I think their version of it is amazing it wasn't I mean I at the time was was only nine or ten and I didn't realize it was an Elvis song I just thought this was a Pet Shop Boys song and thought well, it, it was, was great. almost a happy accident they they performed it on a an ITV special in uh, 1987 which was called Love Me Tender which was celebrating if that's the right word the 10th anniversary of the death yes. of Elvis Presley yeah because he died it, a few months before I was born he did indeed and it was so well received their performance that they decided to record it properly and release it it was the Christmas number one that year and it was voted best ever cover version of a song in a 2014 BBC poll Did I mean that doesn't it? surprise me at all because I think it is far far superior to the original you know I'm sorry for any Elvis fans listening but I, I think it's a superb piece of performance The mention of Elvis takes us to your last selection, although it's not by Elvis, but it's by a group that were hugely influenced by Elvis. What is your last album choice? I'm looking here at the album cover you're holding up in front of me, designed by Peter Blake, Indeed. and featuring on it a cast of iconic figures, including Bob Dylan, Marlon Brando, Fred Astaire, Alistair Crowley, W.C. Fields, Carl Jung... And with the legend, Welcome the Rolling Stones, on the right-hand side, it is, of course... Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. 1967, released by the Beatles. It seems an extraordinary concept that there will be those who have never heard of this album, let alone heard it. What is it about Sergeant Pepper, in your opinion, which makes it so magical? 
Oh, he absolutely is magical. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of the Beatles, and I I got into the Beatles. I I suppose I discovered them, you know, in my very early teenage years. How did you discover them? What was the first thing you heard? I think the the first stuff I heard it was it would have been in the early 1990s when a Beatles greatest hits album was released, and I suppose initially I was very much sold on on the earlier stuff the you know hard days night help i want to hold your hand she loves you and you know that that's all fantastic stuff but i suppose well, i've as i matured and my musical tastes matured i probably came to appreciate the more complex later work of theirs of which sergeant pepper is obviously the masterpiece i suppose i'm surprised given your love for compilations mm that you didn't pick one of the Beatles compilations. And the reason I, I say that is that, like you, I'd heard many of their most famous songs. And then at about the age of 10 or 11, I discovered the rest of their songs through two, what I considered at the time and still do, to be two brilliant compilations, which are now referred to, I think, as the Red Album and the Blue Album, 1962 to 66, and then 67 to 70. I, I listened to the 67 to 70 beforehand. Are you aware of those albums? Yes, no, I'm aware of them. Of course I am. I mean, I'm the re- one of the reasons I chose Sgt. Pepper is that I thought that real music aficionados would feel that I was cheating to have all compilation albums. And I dare say that some of the people that you have on this in the future will actually choose all just straight studio albums do you enjoy the narrative of the album and there clearly is one yeah because often you you will you will hear a song individually and it'll come to the end of the song and you already know in your head the opening chords of the next song and what it's going to be absolutely yes i say the the thing about sergeant pepper it, it just there are it's an extraordinarily diverse range of pieces of music by the same group in one place. Now, the album itself was originally going to be a concept album about Liverpool. And so they set about writing, John Lennon producing Strawberry Fields Forever, McCartney Penny producing Penny Lane, of course. And but, of course, it's a great shame that those aren't on the album. But there is a reason for this. And that is that at the time... There was a rule, a regulation, or at least an understanding, that if you released that as a single, you couldn't put it on an album if it was released in the same year. So, Which seems utterly absurd now. It absolutely does, but with great ill grace and understandable ill grace, they released it, but they were then back to square one. So they then went to Abbey Road with nothing but within a few days had produced, I think, one of your very favourite tracks, and certainly I think many people's favourite tracks, which was A Day in the Life. Yes, which of course was the, the, the Lennon section of it, inspired by a copy of the Daily Mail from January 67, it would have been, and basically the the, the main section about the, the story about uh, Tara Guinness, the, the, the Guinness heir. Tara who, Brown, I think. Sorry, sorry, Tara Brown, the, the Guinness heir, who was killed in a in a car crash and that's the the story that is told in in the the first part of the song and then the other the other random story 
that takes up the other section of the Lennon part of the song is about the potholes in Blackburn, Lancashire. I think the BBC were thinking of banning this, or maybe even did, because they thought it was a drug reference. Indeed, they were the BBC at that time were banning the Beatles for very many of their songs for perceived drug references. Yeah, the idea of you know, say taking these two newspaper stories and creating this incredibly haunting piece of music, and of course it's fused together with this McCartney uh, section, which was written when they were still working on the idea of a concept album. Exactly, and they just stitch them together and it works but how do they stitch it together they have these extraordinary in fact this is one of my earliest memories the first time i listened to the beatles 67 to 70 album i didn't know the song a day in the life at all and i remember finding those extraordinary orchestral crescendos quite terrifying how were you when you first heard those you maybe were a little bit older yeah, no, I guess I, I would have been, I guess, probably about 14 or something. Um, yeah, no, I just, I just got into it. And, of course, the 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 chord at the very end of the song... Massive E major chord. ...goes on for about a minute, doesn't it? Yes, there was a whole collection of pianos. I think there was at least, I think, three or four, maybe more pianos. And they all hammered this chord to see how long they could hold it for. And in fact, if you listen very, very carefully to the end of that chord as it dies away, they turned up the levels so much you can hear the air conditioning in Studio 2, I think it was, at Abbey Road. There's one other track that I know you particularly like on this album, and this one was the one which was inspired by a circus poster. Yeah, Being for the Benefit of Mr Kite. Indeed. And again, the story behind this is that it was when they were they were out filming promotional videos for Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, which was quite a rare thing in those days. And they were filming, I think, in Seven Oaks in Kent. And John Lennon went into an antique shop or an art shop or something and saw this poster advertising a circus that happened in Rochdale in Lancashire, as it then would have been, in the early 1840s, I want to say 1843 from memory. And he basically, the entire lyrics of the song are taken from this poster, which had been produced 120, 130 years previously. Well, everything is on the poster, yeah, from the lyrics. The Hendersons, Somersets, Trampolines, they're all clearly visible. Uh, the song was also banned by the BBC. Well, this was another drug thing, wasn't it? They There was an, a suggestion that Henry the Horse was a heroin reference, apparently. Quite so. Although, yeah. of course, the poster doesn't actually have Henry on it. On the poster, the horse was called Xanthus. The role of George Martin, again, cannot be underestimated in this. Towards the end of the piece, we hear this extraordinary psychedelic sound collage going on behind while actually taking centre stage. Do you know how that was created? Uh, I'm sure you're going to tell me. Well, I am. Nowadays, it would be very easy to do this, but what he did was actually went to the library where they had loads of fairground organ records, and he got one of his engineers to put them onto tape, and they then took the tape off the spools, cut them into loads of... Oh, and then pieced it back together. Well, they threw them in the air, I think, or threw them on the floor, so they were completely in random order. 
And what you have there is this wonderful... You can smell the sawdust in the piece, I think. Mm. I mean, you, you know, and, that, and it's a song which you wouldn't expect to hear it played standalone on the radio. It's, I, I don't even know what genre you would describe it as being, but it's, it's just this, a very magical piece uh, in part of that magical album, and it, and it just works. It brings the first side to an end. In a wonderful way. Mm. We're coming to the end. But before we do, has any music influenced your political thinking? I don't think it has. I'm, I can't think of any. I'm getting the impression from what you've said that your music is a wonderful release for you. It's something which takes you away from a job that you love. But when you need to relax, music is there. Yeah, and I, and I guess, as, I, as we said earlier, there are far more left-of-centre musicians than right-of-centre musicians. And there's a lot of... There's far more music with a political message with a left-of-centre message than the right-of-centre message. And I, I suppose I slightly regret the fact that you know, one of the most beautiful pieces of pop music ever uh, is John Lennon's Imagine. You know, the sentiments behind that song are basically kind of a desire for kind of global communism, really. Um, you know, imagine there's no borders. So I can't sympathise with the sentiments of it, but it's a beautiful piece of music. And I think the piano is much underused in pop music, actually. I, I love hearing the piano on pop music. We could talk about that song for a long time. But before we wrap up, I have to ask finally, has living a life in such close proximity to Parliament and political figures ultimately put you off taking the plunge and becoming an MP yourself? Well, if you look at my school yearbook from 1996, under the section, What is your life ambition?, I did at that stage, at the age of 18, write in black and white that my ambition was to be a Member of Parliament. But, frankly, having done all the jobs I've done in journalism and in campaigning, political campaigning, I, I came to the conclusion quite a few years ago now, actually, that I can have a platform, I can have a degree of influence over the agenda and you know, air my views and be part of the political world without sitting on the green benches as a Member of Parliament. And it's not so much the the sitting on the green benches that I would find challenging, but, you know, the lifestyle of a Member of Parliament is, is very, very difficult. You know, you end up having to potentially live in two different places and not see your family uh, huge amounts of the time that the fact that you know the the public feel that they own you and that a lot of your weekends aren't actually your own because you're expected to be doing things in a constituency and I even think- during even during the week you're expected to be voting as you're told by the whips uh it's 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 not an easy lifestyle i mean i've i've got a lot of friends who are members of parliament on all sides of the house of commons and i hugely respect them for doing it and I see the frustrations they have. I see the difficulties that they, they have. Do they have to put up with 
I, I, they must be at the moment, whatever their political view, they must be experiencing anger. Yes, a lot of them are. And not least from what is outside Parliament, where there are both factions of the Brexit debate. Uh, yes. No, we need to be very careful because we we mustn't stop holding our politicians to account because you know they are there to represent a constituency and to vote in Parliament on behalf of their constituents as they see fit. And obviously it is the democratic right of voters to challenge members of parliament as to how they vote and to respectfully disagree if you think they're doing the wrong thing but also for that debate and discussion and challenge to happen say in a, in a respectful manner and you know I, I fear that at the moment there is quite a lot of disrespectful behavior towards politicians which is difficult is, is hard to deal with so we are not going to see Jonathan Isby, MP. I'm not expecting that, no. Jonathan Isby, thank you very much. Thank you. The Politics of Sound. My thanks to Jonathan for his engaging political and musical views. I'm also grateful to the Politics of Sound String Quartet, who we've heard throughout this podcast, and to Gareth Hart. On the next edition, Liberal Democrat MP Tom Brake will be my guest and paying his own visit to the Politics of Sound record shop. I wonder what his album choices will be. If you've enjoyed this edition, then please do subscribe. We'll see you on the next Politics of Sound. <laughs>